what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This podcast is sponsored by the 2019 Foot Candle Film Festival. This year's film festival will be held September 27th through 29th in Hickory, North Carolina. Learn more by visiting footcandlefilmfestival.com. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. My name is Alan Jackson. I am the co-founder and co-director of the Foot Candle Film Society and the Foot Candle Film Festival. With me, as always, Chris Fry, the Hello. other co on both of those titles, the yes. co-director, co-founder Foot Candle Film Society, Foot Candle Film Festival. Great. So just ditto, basically, is yes, the, the, the title you have. So great. <laughs> How are you doing today? I, I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to uh, talking about the films we've got today. It should be interesting. It should be an interesting show. We'll kind of tell you about the, the films here in just a moment. Uh, this is our ongoing film discussion and review show here on TheMesh.TV. Uh, we try to put out a couple episodes or so, approximately a month. And during our shows, we will talk about one or two fairly new films that are available in theaters or maybe streaming brand new on demand. And we give you a little reviews and insight into our thoughts on those films, following that up with some movie news. And then we always end up the episode with our picks of the episode, kind of our recommendations, the film we think that maybe is worth your time checking out that you might have missed or just uh, to bring back to your attention could also be a film from the past that we've had a chance to revisit and think is worth your time. So as Chris mentioned, we do kind of have some interesting ones to talk about in today's show. We've got two films in particular we're going to be reviewing. First up will be the latest from writer-director Quentin Tarantino. It is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Then we'll follow that up with a film that uh, probably less seen than the first one, but it did go straight to online. It's an interesting film we're going to talk about by director uh, Lynn Shelton, and it's called Sword of Trust. So that's going to be the two films for today's episode, Chris. And what do you say we just go ahead and jump right in on the first one? Let's do it. All right. So first up is Quentin Tarantino's ninth uh, directed film. It is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Miles, then. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? So, Chris, since since this film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, is kind of exploring kind of the, the behind the scenes of Hollywood life, especially when it comes to actors, since our main character in the film, uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is an actor, and we get to see a lot of his kind of his day-to-day life. I thought it'd be interesting, maybe during the setup intro, to go behind the scenes 
of this podcast. Okay, mm, interesting. So it gives a little okay. little background. People can see behind the curtain of what's involved to make this high production quality show that we do here. So you're going to let them know about the huge temper tantrum I had right before we sat down to record. I wasn't going to talk about that, but since you brought it up, okay. um, fair enough. <laughs> we'll get to that on another episode. I think that's worthy of a whole discussion on its own. Right? <laughs> uh, no, talking about this show. Uh, just so everybody knows who's listening to this. You and I work together in, our, in an actual day job. Yes. We work in the same building. Yep. We work right now actually next to each other. So honestly, I can just shout through the wall and you can hear me. That's sure. our kind of intercom system we have between <laughs> our two offices. True. So it does make it challenging when we both go see a film that we're going to review, but we're very committed that we're not going to talk about our opinions of that film before we get in front of these microphones right now. To discuss them. Sure. Try to keep it fresh. Try to keep it fresh. We don't want to let on to like whether we like to film or not. So we keep it kind of uh, on the on the down low until that time. Both you and I have been eagerly awaiting to see this film. I think early in the year, I think I even said it might have been my most anticipated film of this year. And I think as soon as the slightest bit of news leaked about this film, it was one of our news items. And oh, we've yeah. mentioned it at least two or three times. Yes. So it has been an ongoing discussion oh, point for absolutely. us. Absolutely. So you and I don't watch the films together, but we, we do kind of come into the office, and especially after the weekend that this film came out, we both had to have a chance to see it. Um, let me just kind of sh- role play for the audience kind of what our interaction was like, not being able to talk about what we thought about the film, but just kind of giving some insight. Okay. It's like one of us is basically says, you know, hi, Pip. So I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this weekend. The other one would say, yep. I saw it too. And we say, okay, yep. Back and forth, a little bit of that, non, not tipping our hat. And then this time the mold broke a little bit. And I think one of us, I think it was me, and I said, what about that running time? How'd you, how'd you feel about the running time? It's two hours and 45 minutes. I know Chris is not a big fan of long movies. It's true. And then you made a little tip about, well, what do you think? There's one scene or one moment or one part of the film that I thought was just bad. At that point, we stopped talking. I don't know what part you're talking about. You don't know my perception of the film. We are still in the dark, but yet we tipped our hat maybe just a little bit more than normal. So here's the thing, Chris. We still haven't dropped our guard. I still don't know what you think about this film. You don't know what I think about it. We weren't fans of Hateful Eight as much. It's probably my least favorite Tarantino film. Have no, you, you were re- not a big have fan. Have you revisited it? I have not. Okay. Probably should, but right now it's at the bottom of my list. I understand. But we were both really intrigued by the premise of this film. Sure. Tarantino crafting a story about Hollywood in 1969, a time period we you know, can kind of assume Tarantino is a big fan of. Yeah. Uh, talking about an actor working past his prime, which is something that Tarantino has explored in many of his own films by casting people that maybe are a little bit beyond their prime and helping them resurge their their career. Well, we're now we're seeing that actually woven into a story about the character that Leonardo DiCaprio plays. We have Leo and Brad Pitt, uh, two people who have both been in Tarantino films together or before, but never together. Right. Getting to see them, and then knowing that there's some storyline being woven in that has to do with the Manson family and the Sharon Tate murder, and that added another layer of intrigue to the whole project. Which I remember originally, I think back when we first mentioned it on the show. There was no cast. It was basically his next film is going to have something to do yeah. with the Charles Manson murders. And you That's all we like, heard. Yeah. Oh, dear. You know? Yeah, we didn't know how to feel so, about that. Right. Um, 
So here's where I'm going to kick it off to you, Chris. Sure. Quentin Tarantino has said publicly he's making 10 films. This film is considered the ninth film. Now, eh, technically, he counts Kill Bill 1 and 2 it's as one. one film. But this is his, tenth, his ninth film in his, in his uh, mind. So this would make it the penultimate film of his film career if he sticks to what he says he's going to do. With all that background set up, everything, all the drama behind the scenes and all the you and I not being able to share our opinions on things. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you, did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood rebound for you from The Hateful Eight? Okay. Despite whatever bad scene or moment you're going to tell us about. Or does Mr. Tarantino have a lot of making up to do to try to make his 10th and final film an actual winner? Okay. There we go. I think that's a good jumping off okay. point. So it, it definitely was kind of a comeback for me from The Hateful Eight and actually also from Django, or Django Unchained, um, which I liked, but I, I just didn't didn't quite resonate with me as much as I thought. And then, you know, Hateful Eight, kind of same thing. I was a little more disappointed in Hateful Eight. So this, yes, this was more of like a rebound, more of a bounce back. Um, I will say, though, um, who knows what he's going to do for his 10th film. But because this film is kind of an exercise in looking back and memory and nostalgia about that time period, and, you know, that's kind of what he's always done with some of his characters and his films in general. It always kind of seems to be looking back, whether it's through the soundtrack or just, you know, he tries to reinvent different genres. He's kind of a genre, you know, genre mm-hmm. filmmaker. I kind of wish maybe that this had been his 10th film because I think mm-hmm. it would have been kind of the perfect capstone of his career because it has aspects of a TV Western, which kind of is like hateful eight, but it's, you know, it's a TV show instead. It has the multiple different um, plot stories going on, which is like Pulp Fiction. It jumps around in time a little bit, which mm-hmm. is like Pulp Fiction. Um, so, you know, it just, I don't, and it has some kind of the coolness of something like Jackie Brown, some of the characters in Jackie Brown have. So it's it, a little bit of an amalgamation like a, of a lot of his other films. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to think of how to say that. So, I did like the film. Okay. Uh, you referenced in the intro kind of my um, my misgiving. Which I'm racking my brain to try to I, – I desperately want to know okay, what you well, feel like. Well, let me mention it, and then we can discuss some of the – and I want to throw it over to you, and here's you know okay. what you thought of the film. Um, without going into too much detail, I will say that the ending of the film, an aspect of it, reminded me too much mm-hmm. of Inglorious Bastards. Okay. And that shocked me. But I have to say, if you're going to steal from somebody, steal from yourself. Mm-hmm. I do like Inglorious Bastards a lot. Um, I would probably rate it as maybe one of my top, it's in the top five Tarantino films, top three. It may be my number one. It's difficult for me to It is definitely to my number one. Okay. It's difficult a for doubt. me to rank no. films, you know, films from somebody that I, I do like his films. Um, so there was an aspect that I kind of felt like he was ripping himself off. Mm. Now, um, we will maybe get into a little bit of spoiler territory later and I can kind of explain okay. myself a little more, but Alan, what were your, what are your initial thoughts? So, um, I generally like the film. Okay. It's probably mid-level Tarantino for me. If okay. I, I've actually already done my ranking of, of the ah. films. I, I know where this falls. Okay. This has kind of been that if you had, if you count it as nine films or I, I count it as 10 films cause I think Kill Bill one and two. I see very separately, and I rate very separately. Well, so you the, saw them separately. Yeah, so of the 10, I think this is like a number six. Hmm. Five or six, bouncing okay. around in there. 
It's the moments it gets right, it gets really, really right. But there's also a lot of moments that um, Tarantino lost his editor several years back. I've heard some people complain. Sally Menke, who was his editor through his first, I think, seven films. Okay. Uh, I think Inglorious Bastards might have been the last one she did. Okay. She didn't do Django Unchained. She didn't do Hateful Eight. And I kind of felt like we needed an editor, <laughs> a better editor on this one, just because I do feel like the indulgences went on too much, too long, and didn't really add much to the film. But okay. I will say that the moments they led up to mm-hmm. were well worth it. I never felt bored by the film, and I never felt like the form, film was completely pointless. But I think there were long stretches of time where it was just, he just wants us to be experiencing these characters, and that's great. But there's so many scenes of just people driving. There's so many scenes of just all, you know long scenes of acting, which again, fine. But you just kind of want to say, all right, where is this going to? What is what am I building up to here? Okay. So that's my that's my main takeaway. Is I, I just if it had been a two hour fifteen minute movie, kind of tighten up a few of the areas. Sure. I I probably would have had a much higher exp- a much higher. Uh, um, you know, opinion of it. Sure. But as it was, I felt like it might've gotten a little more indulgent on Tarantino's likes and fetishes and things. He likes to put on screen a little more than, than maybe the, we as a, as a viewing public need to be exposed to. Well, I'll definitely agree that the running time, it wasn't a negative for me, but I was aware of it, but I knew going in because I'd heard like, Oh yeah, this thing's two hours and 45 minutes. It's like, okay, which, you know, you put in previews and stuff you're looking at three hours plus by the time you get out of the theater. And I'll say that I think in a way, um, some of the things that he spent time on, I'm wondering if you're, some of these are the frustration. There was a lot of, there's a sequence of Sharon Tate going to the movie theater. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of people kind of knock that. Um, Not that they just, they got bored, kind of antsy. And I see that and I have a double-edged sword with that because what I appreciated was, something that I don't think Tarantino really has ever done for Mm -hmm. me, at least as a viewer is give me character building without dialogue. Yeah. That's what he's known for. And he does a good job. Some people get really annoyed. It's the stylized heightened dialogue, Mm. but it doesn't bother me. I kind of like it. But with Sharon Tate, she never gets that in this film, Yeah, but it was an example of showing stuff on screen and just spending time with this person and seeing her get to see a movie of that she was in on the big screen. She sits with a theater of people and just like, I don't know, somehow I, I felt like it let me get to know this person that you've heard. Unfortunately, all the real life details mm. surrounding the latter part of her life. Yeah. Um, so it was an interesting way to get to know her without making it false by putting a lot of words in her mouth. Well, I, I agree. I, I thought all the scenes with Sharon Tate, well, you know, which was, um, uh, Obviously, it was Margot Robbie playing, playing right. but all the Sharon Tate scenes I thought were essential. Okay. I mean, I thought, because there again, this is an actress that we didn't get to see the best from, unfortunately, because right. she was, you know, her life ended so so quickly and unfairly in the situation, too, just, you know, like anybody in the situation. But getting to spend some time with her, I thought, was, was nice, mm-hmm. and it added to the film. All the character moments, character development moments, I, I think all the all, – first off, I was just going to say, I loved every character in this movie. Okay. Every character in this movie, okay? 
I think Brad Pitt is playing what may be my favorite role of his, maybe, as Cliff Booth. He's the stuntman who is basically a uh, associate of, of Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton. He's like his assistant. He's right. his driver. He's his gopher. And, you know, and, and just getting to know more about him, even some things that are a little alarming about Mr. Booth <laughs> that you start to realize make him a very interesting character. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, I also thought was was really well played. Uh, again, I'm not going to spoil too much of the film, but you know, seeing an actor that kind of is starting to realize that maybe he's past his prime or mm-hmm. maybe he's not the hot commodity in Hollywood anymore. And to see someone who's constantly having to play the heavy, the bad guy, the villain in a film or a show cry mm-hmm. at the drop of a hat, emotional about when he thinks about his own career and all. I love that dichotomy of just, you know, someone who's supposed to be so tough on the exterior, but yet so sensitive uh, outside of the outside of the camera. Loved how he played that balance of there. So really all the characters we got, I, my only issue is uh, some of the characters I wish we had more time with. Sure. Uh, you know, Al Pacino is in the film <laughs> for basically one or two scenes. Yeah. Um, I like what he's doing. Oh, I like sure. his character, but, you know, you don't really see him that much. He's kind of gone after the first 20 minutes. And then he um, comes back a little bit towards the end. For like yeah. one little yeah. moment or two, yeah. but that's cool. about it. You know, you, it, there's a lot of great characters, and I think, you know, even for a two-hour and 45 minutes movie, we don't get a lot of time with many of them outside of the three that we're really following. Yeah, I got some other actors and actresses I want to kind of point out a little bit later, too. But let me just ask you, with in general, the... All right, we're not going to spoil the ending, but let's just talk about the ending as a concept. I think it's okay to say that the last 20 minutes, there's a turn. And I'm just going to ask you if you felt like that turn was warranted, if you felt like it was earned or deserved, or do you feel like it was a little bit of a cop-out or maybe kind of a, 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 a cheap way to end the film? And again, we won't go into details of spoiling. We'll just, I just want to get your thoughts in general. Because the the ending's very divisive for it a lot is. of people, I will and say. I, I, um, did I think it was earned? Sure. Um, and it's not... I, I, the ending is the part I have a problem with. And is it? And it's because of... I feel like he's ripping off Inglorious Bastards. And without going in terms into too of, much detail, okay. I can't really explain All right, why. well, let's table that for sure. the spoiler sure. then. But it doesn't... Um, I think... Yeah, I've said before, which is the overall, because it was the ending of the film, it kind of made me cranky. Mm. But I've said before, like, the cinematic yardstick of a good film is three good scenes and no bad ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I reflected afterwards, my initial kind of like, I mean, I really, it wasn't, I didn't like gasp when it started, but I was kind of like, oh, this is where we're going. And I was just really disappointed. Mm. Um, so it wasn't okay, anger. I think I'm getting an idea it was what you're just talking disappointment. About. Okay. But when I reflect, I'm like, well, that wasn't a bad scene. And the number of good scenes in this film are just so many. Outnumber I mean, the them. ones that come to mind, Rick Dalton having a smoke break with a precocious young child. Oh, and she was so good, too. And she was good. And it, it, just they're having a smoke break on set. That was one of my favorite scenes. So good. Mm-hmm. Um Clint Cliff Booth's talk with George Spawn. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, on the Spawn family, the Spawn Ranch. Yes. Yeah. And specifically, it is a throwaway line, but done by Bruce Stern. I'll just go ahead and throw that out there. But he says, 
you coming here and seeing me today has made my day. Like there was mm-hmm. something that, you know, it's like an old person, authentic, like in yeah. the midst of all this Tarantino craziness to me, that, that actually kind of gut punched me because mm-hmm. he's, it was so what I felt true. And he's like, okay, I'm going to roll over and go back to sleep. You know, so then it was immediately. Well, kind of and the fact that that was at kind of in, within a very tense, tense, well-crafted long scene. Right. Um, it's not the, it was not the ending of the scene you expected from no. the buildup at all. No. But I think that was part of the point is we were expecting something to go one way. Instead, we end up with a much different uh, cap to the scene. So, yeah. So I, yeah, I really like that. And then um, even though it kind of been a little bit ruined in the trailer, the flashback sequence to the Green Hornet set. Oh, yeah. I, I liked. No, it was, uh, so. it was, it was funny. It was interesting. The whole scene, yeah, they spoiled a little bit of the trailer in the trailer, but the full scene actually, I think, takes has, a little more interesting. It's a little more interesting turn to it. Sure, to it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Good. I, I, I'm with you on those so, same scenes. So tell mm-hmm. me, yep. you know, without there again, we won't, sure. won't get to spoilers yet. Mm. But without doing that, what's your take on kind of the the final act? <laughs> I, shall we say? I will say I. I, I I liked it a lot. Okay. <laughs> I did. I I think I know where you're coming from, and I'll be anxious to get more detail. I think I know what your concern is with it, or some of your disappointment. Yeah, I kind of expected knowing that we're going to be looking at a real life event in a certain period of history. Yeah, I, I kind of knew going in that there may be some modifications being made. Right. On things. And I think I kind of went in with that expectation. So that, that why that's why it didn't disappoint me as much. I see. On things. Where I could say I could have been disappointed if I had not already kind of mentally thought that that was going to be the case. Okay. So, yeah. Um, let me call out a couple more things I thought were really sure. great about the film. Uh, Margaret Qualey, um, she, she stars as one of the Manson family mm-hmm. dwellers. Sure. Uh, has the nickname Pussycat. She uh, is actually the daughter of Andy McDowell, which I didn't even know until way after the film. Grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, just up the road from us. Okay. She, I had never seen her in anything else, but she uh, has some great dialogue scenes with Brad Pitt mm-hmm. that I thought worked really, really well. And just uh, she was cr- a very energetic performance, very uh, just captivating, I thought, pretty early on. I thought Margot Robbie as, as Sharon Tate was really good. I, I, I would agree. I, I think... Some people have criticized the lack of her dialogue in the film. I, I don't. I think she did just as much performing without dialogue, and I thought her her whole role was great. Um, and there are several others. And so Julia Butters was the young girl that played Trudy, the other actor, uh, the actor alongside uh, uh, Rick Dalton in the scene you were talking about okay. during the smoke break. She sure. was the one, the, the young child that had a had a really great dialogue scene with with Leo DiCaprio. Even Luke Perry's in the film and has a short clip, which is, you know, unfortunately he passed away since the film was shot, but it was great to see him on screen. And it was a very small role, but very, uh, very fun role. So overall, I think the scene, the film was good. I think there were many scenes that were great. I liked the ending. Um, but I will say that my big takeaway is I just felt like some, some of the scenes just, and the in-between scenes just went on a little too long without much of a point to them, hmm. other than okay. let's show as many cars from the 1969 <laughs> period as we can. Okay. Or let's make sure when we show Leo acting in a, a Western that we get to see all the scene he does. Which, you know, again, it, it, was, it was fun to see him playing an actor, playing somebody else. Sure. But 
you know, it, 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 some of the things just kind of went really long. And I think, the, I think the film could have accomplished just as much, a little shorter. Hmm. Um, but it's worth it. I mean, that's the game. I would not say it's not worth sitting through the whole film. It's absolutely worth it. For me, the scenes you've mentioned... And so the, the performances, which I think are all great. Well, and despite, you know, you've, you mentioned how I often complain about running time. <laughs> Normally that's one of my number one, you know, complaints. I was aware of it, but I immediately want to see this film again. Yeah, I was hoping I to be able to see it a second time before we reviewed it just to see, you know, now that I know how everything's going to play out, how I felt about it. But I do think, you know, he has a very interesting filmography. Maybe it's not his best film, but it's definitely worth seeing. Um, I am curious as to how he's going to wrap up his career. <laughs> well, yeah, right, um, because, I mean, there were so many moments, that if you really think about it, are such callbacks to other films. Yeah. There are several Inglorious Bastards kind of references. Um, I think I, I saw a couple on Django Unchained, since Western seemed to be the genre that Rick right. Dalton was kind of well-known for. Right. Um, there's, yeah, Jackie Brown. I think there's some great references uh, to things that you could see connections there. So, and it being about Hollywood, which is kind of Quentin Tarantino's, that's his, that's his thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd be really curious to see what he actually envisions as a 10th film if this was not the final film. So, right. yeah. Cool. Well, do we want to break into a spoiler and talk about the ending? Sure. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to play a little bit more of the trailer. Okay. So people will know this is now us going into spoiler category. So here uh, we'll play a little bit more of the trailer and come back in just a second. All right, so we're back, and we are going to talk spoilers about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So if you have not seen the film, uh, you need to go ahead and keep skipping ahead because <laughs> we're ruining it for you right here. Uh, let me just set up the scene, and then sure. I want to hear your thoughts on it. So um, we, we go about two hours, two hours and 15 minutes into the film with very little development on the whole Manson side of thing. We are introduced throughout the film to people on the Manson Ranch. We see Charles Manson. We see Charles point. Manson in a couple of quick scenes. But, you know, overall, we're still following Rick's acting career. And then we find out that he goes to Italy to work on some, some Italian westerns. Then when he comes back, that's when I think the last 30 minutes of this film kind of goes at a much quicker pace. Yes. With a narrator, which we didn't really have early in the film. But this narrator... I think he dropped in one time for one bit of narration early in the film. Right. But then he came back for this last 30 minutes. It was kind of like, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. Basically, the ending is we learned that uh, just like happened in real life, uh, the three, four, well, four becoming three members of the Manson family uh, decide to go into the uh, part of the neighborhood where Sharon Tate lives and has three people over at her house at the moment. In real life, those are the four individuals that, that were murdered. Uh, the difference, the little twist that we have here is that uh, Rick Dalton actually encounters them and has a little altercation with them about the noise of their car. While drinking margaritas from a pitcher. That's right. And so they kind of change their plans a little bit and say, let's just get rid of anybody in this Hollywood area. And they go end up going into his house where we have Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, who had just enjoyed a... Uh, uh, it was a cigarette, um, LSD, LSD lace cigarette. Right. So he was already kind of having a little bit of his own trip and the Manson family, uh, attackers come in and instead tried to kill him. But instead he and his trusty dog, 
uh, dispose of them fairly violently. Um, yes. And then we get one of them that goes out to the pool, and Rick Dalton gets to dispose of that one fairly violently. So yes. all three of them are gone. I love the dog, by the way. The dog is awesome. Sharon Tate's alive. Her guests are alive. Uh, one of the guests goes out to see what, what what had happened next door, and he talks to Rick, and he invites Rick up to go hang out with them, which Rick has always pined to be part of the Hollywood elite and be back, welcome back in. So that was his kind and of welcoming in back film, in. He sees Roman Polanski go going yeah, in. He the knows they way. live right next door yeah, to him. So, he's aware. so that's the ending. Uh, it is revisionist history, which I'm assuming is the thing that you have Absolutely. an issue with, Absolutely. because Inglorious Bastards was also revisionist, and that they murdered Hitler during a ambush at a theater before yes. he went too far down committing a lot of the atrocities he did in his life. Um, and that, and that in a nutshell, yeah, that's it. And the thing is, it's not, it was, it was the knockout punch. Um, a, it was revisionist history, which he'd already done in Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. So he was repeating himself then, but if somehow he had just changed it, and not incorporated the stereotypical Quentin Tarantino trademarked violence. Mm. If he hadn't incorporated that with all the grisly deaths of the Manson family members, then maybe it was like he was doing that, which was equivalent to frying the Nazis and killing him. It was like, it was just too, he was revising history and he was doing it in the same way that he did in glorious bastards. So it was, I was, I did an eye roll. I was like, Oh, okay. I roll. Hmm. This is where you're going. And I was disappointed. Now that being said, you know, I don't know why I didn't go in with more of an understanding of that was going to happen because you see the title of the movie, Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 mm-hmm. in Hodge. So it's like, okay, this is a fairy tale. Yeah. This is not real life. But the whole movie, he's, which, you know, he's a provocateur. He gives you dates, he gives you times. And then that really ramps up, like you're saying, in the last 30 minutes. You're like, this impending sense of dread that, mm-hmm. okay, now we're going to have to see Sharon Tate brutally murdered. So am I glad that I didn't have to see that on screen? Absolutely. Um, But I just wish there had been a way to maybe creatively change events without doing it in such a brutal fashion that just mirrored Inglorious Bastards too much. So it wasn't really the revisionist history that you had as much a problem no. with. It's the fact I that was it glad was, to not see somebody get It was the fact that it was history it. was revised by brutally murdering, violently murdering the people that would have been the ones committing the crime. Right. Just like we Just saw like Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, Nazis were brutally murdered inside the theater right. in Inglorious Bastards. Okay. So that, that, I, that was it, you know? Well, you could actually argue Django Unchained is a little bit revisionist, too, because I think the whole goal was to kind of turn a little bit About of the slavery, slavery on its head a bit. Not quite as overtly. See, that, but, makes, me, that makes me hate this film even more because yeah. it wasn't just the second time. But I, if you look at it that way, it's the third time. I didn't consider Django to be revisionist just because they weren't based on real people. Yeah. So I was like, yeah. Okay, that's true. Yeah. There's not an exact moment or date that they, he was revising. You're right. That's probably not a, a fair comparison but, there. but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's like take, getting revenge. I just get and, the impression yeah. that Tarantino says, you know what, if I can – there are things I'm passionate about or feel like were atrocities in our society that I wish I could go back and write if I had the power to do so. Mm-hmm. Nazis uh, and, and what they did, uh, especially under Hitler's rule, um, slavery. Mm-hmm. And because he's such a fan of old Hollywood, and I think the, the classic style Hollywood, Hollywood yeah. many people say the murder of Sharon Tate kind of ended the golden age of Hollywood. So mm-hmm. if he could go back in time and fix it to where that never happened— he would be much happier, you know, and I'm okay with that. I mean, that's as a filmmaker, he's entitled to have that 
that opinion of that. Now, the way in which he revised the history with the use of violence, okay, I could see, yes, it was a little repetitive. I will say this. The crowd I was with. Oh, I can imagine oh my gosh, in the right crowd. Thursday night, opening night of this film. It was pretty insane. I can imagine. Because it is 15 minutes of just nonstop. Tarantino Tarant- stylized it violence. It was funny and shockingly violent all at the same time. I think right. Brad Pitt, that that performance by Brad Pitt in those last 10 to 15 minutes was Perfect. I mean, absolutely perfect. I could watch his performance after he's actually taken the LSD cigarette. Oh. was so good through the end of the film. Right. Um, so anyway, I, it was a turn. I actually remember thinking to myself about two hours in this film, it's like, I don't think I've seen a drop of blood yet. Sure. I don't think I've seen like anybody get shot yet. This is a really <laughs> weird Tarantino film at this yeah. point. And I just knew something was coming, and I was hoping it was not a recreation of the actual murders. Right, and I was – So was, I think, you know – As far as like tone and tone management, yeah. yeah, he was just – he was playing me like a violin because the whole time I liked the movie, but yeah, I had this impending dread that, oh my gosh, I know that he shows violence. He yeah. doesn't stray away from that. I really don't want to well, see that. because in all honesty, the film was a relatively light and breezy film. I mean, the most yeah. serious issue we're dealing with is Rick Dalton thinking he's not a big movie star anymore. That right. was really it. I mean, Well, and the instances of violence. I'm curious oh, about what yeah. you think about this. Yeah. Okay, so we mentioned at the end of the film, there is a hint out at the ranch when Brad Pitt goes to visit the movie ranch. He does beat up a guy. Yeah, no, that's true. That, you're and right. That pretty, is the one kind of. There was a lot of violence in that 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 scene. I'd forgotten about. And one other thing, since we're in spoiler territory, yeah. and this isn't, we could have brought this up in the the review. What do you make of Cliff Booth and whether or not of his marriage? Well, okay. What do you make of that? I I thought it was fascinating. I think it. I think that's the fascinating thing that not many people are talking about because it dawned on me, and I asked my wife. No, but I love. What do you What do you think about that? Yeah. Do you think he's acute? People mention in the film that he killed his wife. No, I've got my theory on it. Oh, I know what happened. Let's hear it. The the shot is so intentional. We're watching him on a boat. His wife is next. It's Rebecca Gayhart, by the way. So actress okay. that used to be on TV a lot. And she, she is. is she him. Oh, Tarantino's playing her as a real. Tough case. Yeah. Just and nagging, being really mean. You see him sitting there. He, uh, You get the sense he feels a little uh, browbeaten. I don't know. You know. We'd have no idea of whether what he's done to deserve it or if he's deserved anything. Can you tell or not both are drinking? There is some drinking involved. And okay. what the scene is so carefully laid out. Is that, the boat also kind of like yes. on choppy water? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And actually, I'm watching very carefully. Okay. He has a harpoon gun that he's using for fishing. Yes. Uh, and it kind of, it's he's got it in a position like he's pointing it away. And then as she's going on and on, he just kind of lets the harpoon sit on his knee or on his leg, it looks like. Okay. And it's, but it just happens to be pointing at her. But the the moment the the scene cuts away before we see what happens, the boat hits something and kind of bumps up a little bit, just right at the last moment of the frame. Okay. Almost like we're led to believe that they hit a wave, yep. and it just, just caused him to trigger that sharpoon gun just so enough to shoot her. I love the ambiguity of it, that well, we don't know whether he intended to do it or was truly an accident. I think that scene yeah. is one of the most genius things <laughs> Tarantino's ever done, because basically... I mentioned reference the Green Hornet scene where it flashes back and he's yeah. you know, the crisis. Well, he had experienced his problems in that because some people didn't want him on set because he yes. was known to have supposedly rumored 
well, to have killed his wife. What was so great? But they is never that, yeah. say, and so then it's like all about things that you don't know for sure, but you're just casting an evil eye on this person because yeah. you have no idea. It's just this is the rumor, and so therefore that person's cast out. Would they? You see that scene, and afterwards, I thought about it. You don't even know. If that's the if that is when his wife died, all they do is show you this scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. His true. wife could have died at their house, yeah. and then there was a mystery around did he kill her? You don't know, but you are making judgments on that person, yep. just sure. like the people on the Green Hornet set were making judgments, and you don't know. Yeah. And I thought that was so awesome because after I asked my wife, and I was, and she really loves the Cliff Booth character, mm-hmm. and afterwards I was like. Now, you realize he killed his wife, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, I guess he did. I was like, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that. But then I was like, but did he? And right. then we started having this debate about it. She's like, no, I think that he, they were drunk or whatever, and then he did shoot the harpoon gun. I'm like, but yeah, you but don't know We don't know. know. That. They never show us. They never tell us, and nobody ever gives specifics about the situation. No. What so I love I about it is— I think that's one of the most brilliant things We were made film. to just love this character because he's so— laid back and yeah. so cool and just i mean Brad Pitt's like in his late uh, 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 lower 50s and still looking sharp sure. and just dressing cool and he's a stunt guy and he's the best <laughs> buddy and and he's such a good friend of Rich, Rick you know mm-hmm. he's the one that's bringing beers over so they can watch Rick's performance on a TV show but yet when you drop that little piece of information and it's by no less but then Kurt uh, Kurt Russell is the one that kind of clues us in, right? Because he's the stunt coordinator on set, and he's like, "Nah, I don't want, I don't want Cliff in the, sh- in, the in there because he brings a lot of baggage to the set." Right. Um, which I think was kind of funny too. And because his Kurt wife Russell, who played, played stuntman Mike right. in uh, Death Proof, right. so you know, which little Zoe connection Bell there. was the other person that was played his, his wife, wife was, right? Yeah, yeah so. a lot of connections there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I thought Cliff Booth was a really fascinating character. And I loved how Brad Pitt, Pitt, Pitt play, played him as well. So. so it's interesting, kind of as a summary, the thing that I think you and I are kind of on the same page, running time and editing decisions or lack editing. thereof seem to editing. be your big holdup. Yeah. Whereas my big holdup was just the fact I felt like he was ripping himself off. Right, which that didn't bother me. Right. I, I was okay with that. It's the editing. I, I just wish it had been a little tighter. Mm-hmm. A little tighter. I just felt like, you know, Tarantino was basically saying, look, I love this time period. I want to soak it in and show as much as possible. Right. And that's great. But at the same time, it's a work of art that's meant for a people to consume and watch. And, you know, it could have accomplished equally as impressive and done just as much with the great scenes with a little less of those uh, in-between flourishes that just seem to drag the film on in a few places. So. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, it's top five Tarantino, okay. which for me is really good. Sure. Inglorious Bastards is one. I'm going okay. to say it's my absolute favorite. Pulp Fiction's two. Kill Bill Volume One is number three. Okay. Um, I will say that I think uh, I like Django a lot better than you. So I thought Django mm-hmm. is maybe four or five. And I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is either that four or five slot there as well. Then you go Kill Bill Volume 2, which I thought was a uh, disappointment after the first volume. Jackie Brown's one I need to catch back up with. See, I really like Jackie I know, Brown. and everybody else does too. And I've seen, <laughs> it's been years since I've seen it. I need to go back. I'm sure it, upon a reevaluation, I'll probably appreciate it more. But unfortunately for me, Death Proof and Hateful Eight 
And, you know, I like Reservoir Dogs. I do. It's just do. not one of the top five or six for me. I think his later work is better hmm. than his first work. But Hateful Eight and Death Proof are definitely, for me, in those bottom two slots. Well, see, I just, Death I Proof about, just didn't work for me. I feel about Hateful Eight the way you do about Hollywood is that I liked it, but I think it was an editing problem. If you well, just cut think, out a lot of stuff and made it tighter. I, I still think, think his so last three better. films have all been edited. I think Django mm-hmm. was a lot longer than it needed to be. Django had a lot of the same thing for me as this film, which is some wonderful scenes, wonderful moments, great performances, but it just needed to be tightened up. Hmm. So I again say I think Pulp Fiction was edited perfectly. I think uh, Inglorious Bastards edited perfectly. So we've lost something. Unfortunately, Sally Minkin, uh, she passed away, uh, unfortunately, years ago, and uh, yeah, I think he's still struggling to get somebody who can help him really take his vision, his film, and put it into a package that really just sings and flows all the way through. So, um, but again, I you know compared to other things we see in the in the theater, this is still well above on the entertainment scale and fascination scale, and the fact that we have so much to talk about it with, especially oh, yeah. even in the spoiler territory, is makes it worthwhile to see no matter what. Sure, we didn't even really talk too much about Leonardo DiCaprio, but. I thought he was really good in this. Oh, I, so. I thought him and Brad Pitt were just like, you mentioned a lot about Brad Pitt, but yeah, they were both really good. I will say this. It was a great bromance film. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. These two guys are such good friends in the film all the way through the end. And well, yeah, you know, and that mm. was something that, um, prior to those 30 minutes, you know, Dalton's career is kind of going on the skids. He's gone to Italy he ends up getting married, and it's kind of like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to have to make some changes. Kind of like I'm basically going to maybe kind of retire or whatever. Hey, sorry, Cliff. But yeah. I think, and I was worried because we were entering that last year. I was like, wait, is Cliff Booth then going to become this murderer or something? That's like, what I was fearful of when know, he went to the Spawn Ranch. I'm like, all right, is he going to get indoctrinated into this group? And then right. because Cliff cut some loose, or, or he, uh, no, because, uh, uh, DiCaprio cuts him loose. He right. kind of loses it. I mean, I'm so glad they didn't go that route. Yeah. So, but no. no, they stuck to that character. He, despite all the, whatever he's been through in his life, which it sounds like he's been through quite a bit. He's been through a lot. I mean, he's living in a little trailer behind a drive-in theater, mm-hmm. um, you know, fixing macaroni and cheese, <laughs> which people online have noted. Fixing macaroni and cheese. And I don't think he put any milk or water in it. I think he honestly just like... Mixed in the, the noodles and the, the, the cheese powder. Nice. Um, yeah, just he's a, he's a fascinating character. I, I would actually watch a whole other movie about Cliff Booth's <laughs> career at this point. That. So, yeah. All right. Well, that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm sure Chris and I will still be talking quite a bit even after Probably this recording so. is done on this show. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. So feel free to drop us any notes, questions, or opinions on the film as well. We'd love to hear from you. We'll tell you at the end of the episode how you can do that. But, Chris, let's move on to a different film, our second review of the episode. It is the latest by writer and director Lynn Shelton, starring Mark Maron. It is Sword of Trust. What you are looking at yes. is a genuine relic that supports the actual truth, which is the South mm-hmm. won the war. Okay. The South won the war? That's right. This is something it's, you want to keep under your hat till you're ready to Seems like pretty big news. Head. Best way to do this is through concrete evidence. Is this antique roadshow for racists? Up to 50,000. 
So in Sword of Trust, Cynthia receives her inheritance from her grandfather, an antique sword that is believed, at least by her grandfather, to be proof that the South won the Civil War. Cynthia, unsure what to do with this new acquisition, visits a pawn shop whose owner is Mel, played by Mark Marin. Mumblecore is a genre of small-budget indie film with naturalistic acting and dialogue that's sometimes improvised. Another hallmark of this genre is that they emphasize dialogue over plot. The director of Sword of Trust, Alan, as you mentioned, Glenn Shelton, is best known for films like Laggies, Your Sister's Sister, and Hump Day, and is often classified as a mumblecore director. Mm-hmm. Does this film stray from the genre she's so closely associated with? And whether it does or not, does that work to the film's detriment, or does it make it better for straying, or not? I'm not able to answer that question, because <laughs> I have never seen any of the other films that ah, Lynn Shelton so has directed. So this your first exposure to Absolutely. I have not seen Hump Day. I have not seen Your Sister's Sister. Uh, none of those. Even though I recommended Laggies on the show, you did not check it out. I, <sighs> Chris, the world I, has no meaning. <laughs> every recommendation you pose... I keep, I put on a big list on the wall in my house. Ah. I worship that list and I work nothing but my entire life to watch every film you've recommended. I just hadn't got to that one yet. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I feel much better. Good. Um, No, this is my first uh, Lynn Shelton film. Okay. Now she's done a lot of TV episodes that I have seen of shows that I watch. I know Glow, for example, on Netflix, she did some episodes of that. Also starring Mark Maron. Yes, Exactly. So I had a, had a little bit of experience with her director's style, but this whole mumblecore concept, um, not, not so much. This okay. is a, a little, a little new for me. So, um, I'll go ahead and say, I thought this film was absolutely hilarious. I love this film. Yes, wow. I did. I, it's slight, it's simple, but I loved every character in it. I just thought it was, I, I found myself busting out laughing more than I have in a film in quite a while. Wow. Well, that's, that's refreshing to hear because I think maybe I suffer from the fact that, you know, I put them in my intro. So kind of hints to the fact that I'd seen them. And yes, yes, I have seen all three of those. The reason to watch this film for me was Mark Maron. Yes. Um, he's for me, he single handedly makes it worthwhile. Um, yes, he is basically playing himself, the curmudgeon with the barbed tongue that he does and everything. He plays the same type of character, not a pawn shop owner, but in glow, he's kind of a mm-hmm. cranky guy in that too. He, Martin he's Marin, good at what he does. Martin Marin doesn't have a lot of range, but the role he plays, he plays extremely well. Yeah. So I, <laughs> so. you know, I, I, I really liked him in this film, but where it kind of fell apart was where I felt like I could see improvised nature, maybe on some of the supporting cast vamping with him and how I, I don't know. It just mm. didn't. It just didn't work for me. Wow. And I felt like it was kind of the political message is not too heavy handed. I mean, you kind of get no. it in the intro. You kind of know where it's going. But still, I felt like it was kind of like a one note joke that didn't go. Oh, it totally. It totally was a one note joke. Right. <laughs> right. It's a simple film. I right. mean, there's really you know you 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 gave the plot summary. And that's there's not a lot more beyond that. Everything takes place in basically two locations. I think. The pawn really, shop and then, and the, then yeah. the farm Yeah, at the end. That's it. And, right. you know, we, we've got the characters, these four characters that kind of get intertwined. There's a couple other characters that have a little more significant screen time, and that's about it. It's a very small, simple film. But I will say I found the plot to be really interesting 
and mm-hmm. funny. Um, and I thought, again, I'm watching this just for reactions and dialogue and being posed some really interesting situations. I, I'm when you have a character whose name is Hogjaws, yes. played by Toby Russ, who I've got to throw out there is I, I've never seen this guy do anything else before, okay. but. God, he was really good. <laughs> and, you know, and, and he, yeah, no, I won't go into plot details too much because it's later in the film, but the role he plays and the interactions he has with the four main characters. And I don't know, it was just, it worked for me. I just had a blast with this film. I thought it was really, really fun. <laughs> so, well, and so, so. Maybe if I'd seen the other ones, I would have a little more critical view of this one. But I just, uh, you know, Michaela Watkins is uh, plays one of the, uh, one of the four main characters, along with Jillian Bell, I think they're both really funny together, and I like their characters. And I got to give a MVP to John Bass as oh. Nathaniel, okay. who was who is Mel's assistant in the pawn shop. Every every reaction from this guy, every bit of dialogue, I thought was just hilarious. And they have a dialogue later in the film about whether or not the world is flat that I thought was just funny, really right. really and good. I, so, and I think. Yeah, and I think the problem was I felt like I could see a lot of the improv coming through, and maybe yeah. it wasn't because yeah. you never know. I sure. just know that there's a tendency mm-hmm. in you know films that are of hers that she tends to do that, and like Mark Duplass is in the same school, you know, kind of like they do a lot of improv stuff. So I don't know. I just I felt like it was showing a little bit, and the runtime since we have talked oh, about that nice. with Hollywood, hour twenty six, right? Know, so, so, and I felt like if. Some of that, it could have been trimmed back even more because I felt like it was just kind of, you know, hitting the same yeah. joke over and over. But it, no, it worked. I, 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 it's not a bad film, but yeah. to me, it was very slight. Wow! And I was surprised there wasn't a little bit more than that. And if Mark Marin, if it had just been somebody else and not Mark Marin, I would probably rank this film lower. But the fact that he was in it and just well, kind of knocking it out of the park. Oh, as far yeah. As he no, he do. was great. He was so. so good, so entertaining. And, uh, and you know, they have a, there is a subplot in the film that is a little more serious. It's he oh, and his, his, you didn't like that? No, it was terrible. No. And now and Lynn well, Shelton played and that his made former, and you that know, made uh, yeah, former love interest. Love interest yeah. Sure. And that, that to me, I was like, I, even though I've seen her films, I don't think I've ever been aware. She may have been in all the films yeah. I mentioned. I don't know. But something about that, I was just like, yeah, it's just kind of throwaway. And then how it's like hinted at again at the end. I'm like, ugh. No, it totally I, I roll. And then when I saw it was her, I was like, ugh. Well, no okay. So here's, here's – I'm going to take a little more philosophical view of this film. <laughs> sort of trust. Maybe the only person that takes well, a philosophical sort view. Sort of trust. Even the title. The, title mm-hmm. yeah, the film is dealing with a sword. Yes. A sword that is found and is going to be pawned. And then they find out it may be more worth more than they expected and all the, the things that come out of that. Now, I do like mm-hmm. what um, – what did you say the girl's name with the blonde hair? What's Jillian Bell playing okay, Cynthia. Okay, yeah. So, so Cynthia, yeah. Cynthia's um, – where what she ends up doing with the sword, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the film, I really like that. Well, I, and I think and that, that speaks to – That, like that speaks to the, the bigger uh, – the film's title, Sword of Trust. Right. It is about basically at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're treated to really six characters that have interactions with one another and very, or actually seven varying levels of trust that have to be mm-hmm. given right. on all sides. Right. You've got, you know, uh, Michaela, Michaela Watkins and Jillian Bell's Mary and Cynthia. There's a level of trust between the two of them. That's very strong. 
you've got Mark Marin and John Bass as Mel and Nathaniel in the pawn shop. And there's some sense of lack of trust there. You've got Mark Marin as a pawn shop owner where you get right off the bat that there's probably not a lot to trust in him necessarily at first either. You know, and then, of course, you got the people that they're interacting with that they're trying to deal with on the sword, uh, played by Dan Bacadal and by Toby Huss, who I mentioned, the lack of trust and not knowing who to trust on things. I mean, I get it. And then we get a closing scene that is a, is a, is a break from the rest of the film. The rest of the film's a lot of dialogue and it's lighter and funnier, except for a couple of moments where they get a little serious. But for the most part, it's pretty light. Right. And then you get to an ending that's a li- meant to be a little more touching. But if you weave into this whole idea of this trust, uh, you know, maybe Mel's character, whether or not he's learned a bit of a, a sense of trying to trust someone or not that he couldn't trust earlier. I don't know. It kind of works. So I, I, I got a lot more out of it. I thought it was fun. And uh, yeah, it's a very slight movie. I mean, there's not a lot of, not a lot of deep uh, things going on, but I think the couple of messages it tries to hit, I think are good. And I think it's worth watching just because I thought the dialogue was really funny, really great. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, sounds like you like it a little more than me. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I thought it was a fun movie. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. So that is sort of trust. Uh, yeah, I know it's showing it in a few theaters, but the great thing is it came right straight online. So uh, people like us that wouldn't have got to see it in a theater here locally because it would not have played around here. We got to see it you know, pretty much when it opened online as well. So that is sort of trust by writer and director Lynn Shelton. And so we've capped off our two reviews. We had Sword of Trust and we had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Chris, we're going to take a quick little break. And when we come back, we will do our movie news. And we'll also move right into our recommendations for the episode. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Andrew Moose from the Street Circle Drive podcast here on The Mesh. Interested in promoting your business to an online audience? Your ad could be right here. Consider advertising on the Mesh Podcast Network. Head over to themesh.tv for details. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on themesh.tv. This is Alan and Chris here with the Foot Candle Film Society. We just finished our reviews of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and our review of the online film A Sword of Trust earlier in this uh, episode. Both of us are high on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood couple of misgivings, but overall felt like it was a, a worthwhile film and a great entry into Tarantino's oeuvre. But then Sword of Trust were a little more split on. Chris felt was maybe a little disappointing, not as not as much as he, he wanted, where I had a really good time and thought it was a lot of fun and enjoyed it quite a bit. So, Chris, why don't we toss right over to you, because I believe you have some news items to share with us. Uh, for this episode. This is Chris's News. That's we right. need like a special intro Alan. theme song or something. <laughs> I'm for giving Alan so. a break this episode. I didn't have to do any research this yeah, week, yeah. which is so nice. So go me. for it. What do you got to talk about with us today? Alan, they are making a Barbie movie. Yes, I've heard that. Okay. Now, have you heard that Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach are co-writing it? Yes. Okay. Surprising. And have you heard... Have you heard that Margot Robbie is starring? Yes. Okay. And that, <laughs> and that Gerwig may also direct. They haven't actually made that down yet. It, it's, it's still a lot to process. I mean. It is. But if anything can get me to watch oh, absolutely. a Barbie movie, yeah. everything that I just revealed. Yes. So Noah Baumbach and uh, Greta, Greta Gerwig, Gerwig. Mm-hmm. they last worked together on, was it Miss 
Was it Miss America? Mistress America Mistress or America. Francis Ha. One of the, or they may have done both of those I think those they together. did both of those films. Okay. So Mistress America and Francis Ha, they worked together on. Greta Gerwig, of course, recently directed Lady Bird. Right. That got uh, Oscar nominated for Best Picture? Mm, no, maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't Maybe Best Director? Sure. I we'll stick remember. the intern on that. Yeah, I don't <laughs> remember. Do but it, it got a lot of award yes, recognition. Absolutely. So a Barbie movie. Now, at one point... In it's earlier production, been in it's in development for a, for a long, long time. time. I remember when, um, oh my gosh, I'm having, I'm having an older senior moment here. <laughs> uh, the comedian that was in uh, Trainwreck, Amy Schumer, was okay. attached to it. They were going to go a little bit tongue in cheek, kind of her playing against typical Barbie stereotype and having a film like that. Gotcha. And that didn't go anywhere. So now I'm really curious what they're going to do about this. So a Barbie movie mm-hmm. directed by Noah Baumbach, who is already, you know, has a very, uh, his films have a lot of biting humor, but also uncomfortable drama situations, family dynamics, a mm-hmm. lot going on there. Um, and then Greta Gerwig, who I think can do comedy, and she's a funny person, but is this going to be a comedy? Is it going to – I don't know. I mean, you would think so because of – I mean – The concept of Barbie is a you know, <laughs> right. a, a child's toy. Right. But yeah, don't know. But no, if anything can get fascinated. me to go see it. You know, yeah, no, be... it's going to be very, very interesting. So is Baumbach doing anything – before that, and the I'm, last thing I, that we discussed they did was the Meyerowitz Chronicles, and I don't right. know if he, which I liked quite a bit. Yeah, I liked um, it. I see that right now. This is I've got my information pulled up. The Meyerowitz stories was 2017. Stories, yeah. He is writing. Oh, sorry. Let me look at director. So okay, so he he's not signed on to direct Barbie. The, correct. He's screenplay. I'm screenplay, sorry, my my, right. my mistake there. It could be Greta Gerwig directs it. Possibly. She has not yet. Possibly, yeah. Uh, He doesn't really have anything else on his slate. Hmm. Um, Right now, it's got Greta Gerwig listed as director on IMDb. And Noah Baumbach uh, as a screenplay writer. Um, So, we will see. He does have one film called Marriage Story Hmm. that he's directing. That's supposed to be released in the next year. So, um, fascinated. Yeah, I'm think it's interesting. Uh, yeah. If anything can get me to go see, if people say it's the slightest bit good, I'll, I'll so throw down So you my heard mind. it right here. We will be reviewing the Barbie, the Barbie movie, movie uh, <laughs> yeah. at some point in the future. So Yeah. Okay. So uh, we'll move on from that to something that I 100% know that you are aware of. Um, and most people that listen to this show probably have somewhat of an interest in comic book movies. Otherwise, you would just tune out on 80% of the reviews <laughs> we do for the show. I, it's, um, it's, it's what's in theaters. I can't control that. So, you know. And apparently, according to what they talked about, the news coming out of Comic-Con for Marvel Phase 4. Are you really going to open up this door for me? We, so, we have mm. these titles, and I want to know which one, sure. if Alan said, only one of them can survive. So this is like Shark oh, Tank. Okay, only one this can survive. Is, this is Shark Tank for these films. Okay. Which, is, which one's going to survive? Got it. Okay. We have Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which mm-hmm. is... Going to be by the same director, which I forget his name. Scott ben- Derrickson. Okay. Mm-hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch is going to return. Mm-hmm. Now, what could sway your vote here is that supposedly it's going to be kind of a horror film. That's what I understand. Okay. Yes. So next up, we have Thor Love and Thunder, directed by Taika Waititi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hemsworth's returning. Natalie Portman is going to be a female Thor. Yes. So 
Straight from the comics. That is a storyline that, yes. So next up we have Eternals, directed by Chloe Zhao of The Writer, Mm -hmm. with Angelina Jolie and Camille Nanjani as two of the people associated with that movie. And I don't know which part of the lore they're adapting, but at one point my favorite writer in the world, Neil Gaiman, actually wrote a Mm -hmm. series of The Eternals. He did. I don't know if that's the one they're going to adapt. That was the version of The Eternals where I believe they were living in New York City, and it was them kind of realizing that they were actually Eternals. It was a, yeah. So I don't don't know if that's the one they're going to do or not, Mm -hmm. but I I sure hope it is because I love the work that that dude does. Okay. Then, for some, it's the long-awaited Black Widow standalone movie. That's going to have Scarlett Johansson reprising her role, but it's also going to have Rachel Weisz and Florence Pugh, who just recently talked about in Midsommar. Yeah. So there you go for Black Widow. Mm-hmm. You got so, one more film. <laughs> you forgot one film. Oh, no. You know, I, I debated on it. I was like, well, you've mentioned all the other ones. You've, you've got to mention this one. So Shang-Chi yeah. yes. and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yes, right. <laughs> With Tony Leung. The first and, Asian uh, Asian lead, you know, in a film, which okay. will be great. So, uh, and then directed yeah. by the guy who did Short Term 12. Yes. Um, Destin Daniel Cretton. So... There you go. All right, so five films, and you want me to tell me which one I have to keep. That's your that's your slate of five films, but only one can go on. Yeah, I'm 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 going to go with the Eternals. Okay, for a couple reasons. One, it's an unknown property to most everybody. Kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy was when it first came out. It was that was not a popular comic property at the time, but they had a lot of fun with it. They could play with it worked the characters the angle they wanted to and had a lot of fun. And plus they had a really interesting director attached to it. I think, you know, having Chloe, uh, Chloe Zhao as the director is fascinating. I'm yeah. curious to see what that happened. Uh, I like the fact that we've got Angelina Jolie, Richard Madden, who I really like as actor. Okay. Um, uh, like you mentioned is as well. I think it's an interesting cast. I like the fact that I don't know what direction they're going to take with it. <laughs> Right. So I'm probably the most fascinated by that. And if I had to keep one, that would be it. Black Widow. Um, I have a prediction about Black Widow. Really? Should I say it on the show here? And sure. that way we can find out if in a year or so if I'm correct. Absolutely. Everybody is all concerned, which I thought was the same. You know, spoiler for Avengers Endgame. Can we go ahead and just say that this is a spoiler moment for the Avengers Endgame? Yes, which I pretty much have already forgotten other than... <laughs> Well, it has to do with Black Widow. To, she's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. She's dead. Right. Yes. <laughs> so she I died. Rem- I did remember that. She dies in Avengers Endgame. Yes. So, obviously, this film, they're saying, is going to be kind of a prequel. Prequel. Now, right away, there's some problems with this. Oh, uh, I think there? I think from a marketing standpoint, I think there's going to be a lot less interest in going to see a film that's not moving the Marvel Universe forward. In other words, they should have done this before now. That would be now, my thought. Yeah. Here's my guess is that this film will actually surprise show that the Black Widow we were following in Endgame was some sort of clone or what? some sort of – That's my guess. Because why in the world would they make such a big deal about this film if it's all it's going to do is go back and fill in a little gap of history? Hmm. I just I don't see that as Marvel's way. I oh, think they're going to pull. Make me so well, I can see cranky. the Chris Fry eye roll <laughs> a mile away at that point. <laughs> but I'm just saying that's my my guess is somehow it's going to upend her death in Endgame to where she is still around. Oh, that is my guess. Oh dear. I'm laying it. I've got nothing to base that on. Off of okay. just hunches. Okay. So Black Widow, eh, I'm interested in the film, but take it or leave it. I am fascinated with uh, Pew, uh, Florence Pugh playing a sure. part because I really liked her in Midsummer. 
Um, the other ones, I think, all sound like interesting projects. I do like the idea of the Thor. The next one with, with Taika Waititi doing it again. That's going to be a lot of fun. Glad to see that. Uh, um, uh, uh, shoot. Um, the girl um, in Natalie Thor. Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. God, I've got to get better with names. <laughs> Natalie Portman coming back, I think, is sure. really fascinating. So, well, yeah, because she was in. She had a falling out with Marvel. Right. And she wasn't really in any of the Avengers movies. Right. Um, they supposedly, referenced her at one point. Supposedly but... she was not happy with her role in the second Thor movie. Okay. And, Kind of got regulated to just being the, the the girlfriend on the side, so she kind of broke up with Marvel. Didn't have anything to do with any of the Avengers movies. Thor even makes a comment in one of the Avengers movies, like, "Yeah, she's off doing something else," you know. <laughs> so it was kind of nice to see her make up and say, "Yeah, I'll come back," and this is the part I'm going to play, and that's cool. Right. So all the other films sound interesting. I love the idea of a horror Mar- Marvel film. I just, to me, the one I'm the most interested in is the Eternals because I know next to nothing about it and they can really go in any direction they want to go with these characters. See, I wish I could be, and you, you totally left out even mentioning again, Shang-Chi and the Legend. Well, that of one Tim sounds Lee. interesting too. I mean, <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, they all sound okay. really interesting. I, I, again, I'll see all of them. I'm, I'm a, I'm a Marvel zombie. That's fine. I'll go see them. But if you're telling me I got to cut four loose, I'm like, well, let me see something I don't know anything about. And that's the Eternals. See, um, the Eternals for me, that's the easy answer for me. Yeah. A, because I don't know anything about it, so I'm interested in that. But B, I'm hoping that they take the They adapt more of the game and yeah. model of that. That's yeah, what sure. I'm hoping. Because yeah. the other, like, I don't feel like I really need a sequel, which is what I consider to be Black Widow. Although I really like Taika Waititi's Thor thing, I feel like at this point that's kind of been played out. It may still be really good. Well, I hope it is. But I'm kind of, you know. Well, three of them are technically sequels. Sequels, right. Two of them are original. Shang-Chi, I think, will be really fun and interesting. That's probably my second uh, most desired film of the okay. five. Just because I'm, I'm, I'm anxious for some original characters, some new characters to sure. pop in. And to take some interesting twists. I like the idea of his film. Maybe It may be a little more grounded because he's not a super-powered character in the comics. He's just really, really good martial arts and kind of a more grounded hero. So I'm kind of anxious to see if they take that same approach with him or not. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, the Eternals, I'm really kind of just more fascinated by. Okay. And I mean, Angelina Jolie signing on to a Marvel film. I mean, you know, whatever, whatever you may think of her as an actress, she brings a lot of clout to the project now. Sure. That I think will be interesting to see what they do with it. So Yeah, and just... Yeah, a Marvel movie being made by the director of the writer. Yeah, that just is like uh, which what? <laughs> we both really like the writer yeah, a did. lot. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. it's a very slow film. It's a very beautiful film, but to make a film called The Eternals, which is basically people who are almost godlike and like powers and almost like a race of people, maybe hidden in our society now. I, it's just a fascinating yeah. match. There. Yeah, that that's yeah. definitely a standout. So for my Shark Take money, that's mm. the one that gets to go forward. <laughs> Good. Well, we're looking at uh, having that coming out here in a couple of years. I think that one is kind of slated for well, next November 2020. So Black Widow is supposed to be in the spring, and then uh, The Eternals will be next fall. So On our website, um, themesh.tv, I think on the information page about Foot Candle Films, it lists who is your favorite director, Alan. Oh, it changes quite a bit. <laughs> but as to the website, I think it's listed as Martin Scorsese. Yeah, that would, I mean, he's one of my top three or four. Yes. So Alfred Hitchcock, okay. Martin Scorsese. I'd say probably now uh, uh, they, There Will Be Blood guy. 
<laughs> P.T. Anderson. <laughs> P.T. Anderson. I, I mean, I know him yeah. on a personal basis. Right. I'm just calling P.T. That's really it. Yeah. Martin Scorsese, yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the trailer for The Irishman yes. has dropped, Alan. Have you seen this trailer? I have. Okay. Starring Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. It's going to be premiered at the New York Film Festival in September and then drop on Netflix shortly thereafter. Yes. Alan, feelings? Um, I, I think it looks promising. Okay. Um, it did not dawn on me. I guess, I mean, it's obvious, but it didn't really hit me that Al Pacino has never worked with Martin Scorsese before. I don't think I realized that either. Yeah. If you had asked me that, I would have gotten it wrong. Now, unfortunately, De Niro and Al Pacino... They were together in Heat, mm-hmm. really good movie. They had great scenes together in that in that film, especially the diner scene was mm-hmm. so good at that. That was like the first time I think they were in a film together. They've done one or two more since then. There was like a really bad film called like Righteous Kill or something that they were in. <laughs> yes. I kind of wish this was the first time they were in a film together, together and they were in a Martin Scorsese film. But as it is, this is the first time Al Pacino has been in a Scorsese film. Okay, um, they're using a lot of de aging technology. Which That's is a little concerning. What I'm a little a little concerning. Of. Yeah, but we are looking at what the story of Jimmy Hoffa against a union organizer and just yeah, based on real history and um, I think it looks really interesting. Um, the last kind of gang mobster film type thing that we had with crime, organized crime, was probably from Scorsese. Was what The Departed? Uh, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was fine. It's not one of my favorite Scorsese films. And then I know he did Shutter Island, which I also thought was fine. Uh, what has he done since then? What did he do? Well, he did Hugo. Um, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And he did Silence. Which I never saw Silence. I did, and it was well made, but it was really slow. Yeah. And I wasn't that big of a fan. Either. So this is him kind of getting back to Departed, the Departed Territory, and then of course going back to Goodfellas, and you're going back to you right. know Mean Streets and everything else he did early sure. on. No, I'm, I I love that version of Scorsese, so I'm <laughs> I'm on board. Okay. I'm ready for you know go ahead and drop Gimme Shelter somewhere in the film, and give me the the the, the typical musical cues that that Scorsese likes to use. Uh, we'll see if it pays off. I, I hope it's not a grab for. Okay, yeah, we're going to put De Niro in it. Oh, let's put Al, Pac- Al Pacino in it. Oh, let's make it a gangster-related movie. I hope it's not just trying to put those little pieces together to one get more, that one more time to get that big <laughs> Netflix opening weekend magic, and then right. it just doesn't hold together. I, I hope it's a good film, but yeah. I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah, Your thoughts? What did you I, think? I'm, I'm leery of it, um, yeah. just because all I knew was I was getting a Martin Scorsese film on Netflix, and I was like, well, cool, you know. But then the subject matter just seems to be so kind of typical to me Mm -hmm. that I don't know that I'm that excited about it anymore. But, you know, it will be on Netflix, so I'll get to see it for free because I already have my subscription. So, you know, why not watch it? But, um, yep. So that kind of wraps up the news. Um, Okay. Great. You want to play a little bit of the trailer and then well, we'll yeah let's play a little bit of the trailer and then we'll come in and uh, come back for our recommendations here so a little clip of the trailer from the Irishman hello hi my friend I got that kid I was talking to you about here I'm gonna put him on the phone let you talk to him okay completely forgot hello? to mention that Joe Pesci's in the film too which is again yes. You got to make the good fellas connection there. 
Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you too, even if it's over the phone. Our friend speaks very highly of you. Thank you. Yeah. So let's go ahead and come on back to our recommendations. And this is the part of the show where we like to each come up with one film that we think we want to make a recommendation that you should see. Can be an old film, can be a new film, but we try to generally say a film that you can like turn off this episode, go to your home entertainment TV system, laptop, whatever, and actually watch. That's what we try to do instead of it being a film that you'd have to go find at a specialty theater that may not be available for you quite yet. So Chris, with that, uh, with that, uh, with that in mind, what film do you have to recommend for us this, this episode? So hop back in the time machine. Okay. I'm there. And go back to the year 2008. Oh, I remember 2008. <laughs> it was a good year. So the film, a Catholic school principal questions a priest's ambiguous relationship with a troubled young student. You're like, you know what? That just doesn't really sound like something, you know, it sounds like it's going to be very heavy. I just don't think mm-hmm. I want to watch that. It gets Academy Award nominations. You're still like, you know what? I just, I just can't. Mm-hmm. Well, that was me with Doubt in oh, 2008. Yeah. Sure. You know, it had Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. Meryl Streep, Amy Adams. But I still was like, you know, plus I heard a lot of disparaging comments that basically the movie, which I believe was adapted from, yeah, was adapted from a play. Mm-hmm. Um, John Patrick Shanley wrote the play. He then wrote the screenplay, and then he directed the film. Um, that basically it was just very kind of boring mm-hmm. um, because it was very stagey, as you would have guessed, if it came from a play. And so there just wasn't a lot of camera movement. It just kind of lacked a lot of life. So I never saw it. Okay. Well, I recently caught up with it, and... I thought it was amazing. Yeah. It was really, really good. Um, You know, maybe it helps a little bit by the running time. It's 144 minutes, so it's less than two hours for a drama. So you're like, okay. But just the sheer power of Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Meryl Streep. And he's not an actor, but I'm going to give him credit for being an actor because (laughs) I feel like it is. Roger Deakins and his cinematography are kind of like the other actor in the film. I remember it was a beautiful film. Yeah. Yeah. It just... I just really thought it was great. Great performances. Viola Davis actually has a very powerful mm-hmm. cameo in it as well. So if you're looking for kind of a an acting workshop just to see, you know, this is the definition of acting. Wow. Well, here you go. All the performances are dead on. It's really good. It's well shot. It does make me miss uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I was going to say it. It's tough for me to watch any Philip Seymour Hoffman performance nowadays. Yeah. I even saw him in Mission Impossible 3 just not too mm-hmm. long ago, which I think he he played one of the best villains we've had in an action movie like that. And yeah, it's a shame that he's he's no longer with us. So, yeah. he's good. All right, well, doubt. I haven't seen it since it came out. I saw okay, it so like yeah, I did okay. I saw it, yeah. Um I don't think I saw it in the theater. I think I saw it right when it went like to rent. Got you. And I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I thought it was a well-acted film. Uh, it's the acting and the the, the 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 screenplay that really makes that one sing. Sure. But I do remember it looking really sharp as well too. So, that's great. Um, my recommendation is of one that is probably a good surprise for anybody that knows me. I am not someone who does a lot of reading um, <laughs> of non of fiction material. Gotcha. You know, I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of you know shorter articles and shorter essay things. So, along with not reading a lot of novels, I also have never really gotten into Shakespeare, uh, the works of Shakespeare. 
Wait, you're going to recommend a period piece? I am. Yes. Am I going to want to see it? <laughs> um, there may be some elements of this you would okay. like. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to recommend a film that just came out recently. It's available online right now, but it is playing at some theaters. Okay. It's Ophelia, directed by Claire McCarthy. It is a reimagining of the story of Hamlet, which I'll go ahead and say, uh, if you'd asked me to tell you the story of Hamlet before seeing this movie, uh, it would have been a little sketchy. It would have been a little vague because I don't remember as much of the details. Maybe that helped me with my appreciation of this film. I don't know. But we have this film where it is a period piece taking place in the, the time that, that Hamlet would have taken place. And we have Daisy Ridley playing Ophelia. So is it reimagined with lightsabers? Yes. Okay. Did they not have lightsabers in the original Hamlet? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, I'll see. There again. Probably something I would have realized if I would actually read the <laughs> Shakespeare's work. Gotcha. Um, Daisy Ridley, of course, from the Star Wars films, as that joke implied. Uh, as Ophelia, we have uh, Clive Owen playing Claudius. And I will go ahead and say this. I think Clive Owen should, pay, should play a mustache-twirling bad guy in every film now going okay. forward. Because he was actually a lot of fun. He seemed to be having a lot of fun with his role. So he needs to have one digitally inserted for Gemini Man that's coming out. <sighs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to bring you down. Yeah. No, that's the thing. The funny thing was I saw him play Claudius in Ophelia, and the very next night I think I was at the movie theater, I saw the Gemini Man trailer, and he's in it, and I'm like, oh, that looks like stereotypical bad guy. I wanted hammy, over-the-top bad guy that I saw the night before. Um, We'll see how he does with that. Sure. Uh, Naomi Watts is in this playing uh, Gertrude. Awesome. And then Tom Felton from uh, Harry Potter fame. He played uh, Draco Malfoy. Oh, wow. He plays uh, Laertes. And we have a, a young actor I'm not familiar with, George McKay, playing Hamlet. <laughs> but I'll tell you, Hamlet's in the film very little. This is all about Ophelia, his, his love. And as I'm told, because we did screen <laughs> this film uh, sure. at one of our film screenings, as I was told by the audience afterwards, they took a lot, They made some major drastic changes with the ending of Hamlet, hmm. especially as it relates to Ophelia's character. So it is a true reimagining. Don't go in okay. expecting this to be a pure adaptation. But the period piece side of it, the clothing, the costumes, the set design was all really, really pretty, really hmm. good. Okay. I like Daisy Ridley as an actress. I think she's fun to watch. I actually enjoyed the story. I followed it. I liked it. I I liked the ending of it. So do they, do they still do like period dialect? So um, it's light on the period dialect. It's okay. very easy to follow. Okay. I think I even read somewhere they kind of did some more modernization. It didn't go contemporary. It's not sure. like it's trying to be hip and irreverent. It right. it's still Shakespeare type dialogue, but it's a much easier version of it to digest and follow. So hmm. I liked it quite a bit. I think it was great. It was a nice surprise for me. It's not one I expected to like. And I will say it's just a beautiful film to look at, too. Well shot. A lot of great production design behind it. So that is Ophelia. And, uh, you know, the critics have been kind of mixed on it. It's been, uh, I think, the Rotten Tomatoes scores like in the mid-50s. So it's hmm. half liking it, half not. I don't know if the concern is that they took a little too many liberties with the Hamlet story or what. Or maybe they didn't feel like it took enough. I'm not sure. But um, I liked it. I enjoyed it. If I was more versed in Hamlet, maybe I wouldn't feel the same way. But me being fairly a, much a neophyte in that area, I thought this was a, a very interesting film. 
Cool. So, so our two were Doubt and Ophelia. Uh, both of it sounds like films that neither of us would have pegged that we would have enjoyed no. <laughs> on the outset, but now we've watched them and we both are fans of these two films. Yes. So, so Chris, I think we've been going for quite a while and we need to go ahead and wrap the show up. So as a recap, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we're both saying uh, go check it out, especially if you're a Tarantino fan, although we both wish maybe the editor had had a little more impact in the final running time. And Chris uh, has some misgivings with the way the ending was handled. And then uh, the sort of trust, I'm giving a very high recommendation to you, Chris, not so much. Um, I think if you're a fan of the Mumblecore type of films, you'll probably find something to enjoy here. But just uh, Chris's opinion is it came out kind of slight and didn't really leave as much. It left a lot to be desired. I personally laughed quite a bit more than I have at a film in, in quite a while. And then Ophelia and Doubt are two recommendations. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Chris, people want to talk to us. They want to reach out and uh, give us their opinions. How do they do that? You can send us an email to info at the mesh.tv with foot candle in the subject line. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chris Fry, at Alan Jackson, and at foot candle film. Alan and I are also on the website Letterboxd. Um, please consider subscribing to this show on iTunes if you're not already and uh, leave a star rating or review to help us reach new listeners. We're also on Spotify and Stitcher. The 2019 Foot Candle Film Festival is going to be from September 27th to 29th. There's more information about that at footcandlefilmfestival.com. Tickets are now available, so go there for you know more info about the festival, but also to see our schedule and to get tickets it's gonna be it's gonna be good. It'll be our fifth festival, so we're pretty excited about it. Fifth festival. Yes. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We we announced our films. They're on the website, as Chris mentioned. And uh, tickets are available now. So we hope you come out and join us that week in September. And uh yeah. Also, we don't normally are able to do this, but you know, Alan and I have been so production minded that we can go ahead and tease our next uh show. We're going to be True. reviewing uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco Correct. and Crawl. I'm going to state right now that I think my expectations are too high for Last Black Man in San Francisco. And I think I'm going to be let down just because I'm expecting to love the heck out of this film. So All right. Well, you've already set I'm the gauntlet pretty high there. I hope I'm there. not disappointed. I hope. But I, so we're watching I'm Crawl. Afraid. Did we decide on that? I thought we did. <laughs> Maybe we did. On air production meeting. Don't know. Oh, Yeah. I think I was awake during that movie. No, that's fine. That's the big crocodile movie, right? Yes, that is it. Okay. Which I've actually heard interesting things about. Yeah, no, no. I've heard so. I've heard some pretty good things. Okay, so Crawl and Last Black Man in San Francisco. Interesting yes. pairing. Yeah. <laughs> Quite yes. opposite films. Yes. But um, good. That's what we'll do. So, yeah, we'll be back in a couple weeks with our reviews of those two films. And we'll uh, have some more recommendations and news items to share. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Remember, we're on TheMesh.TV, where you can find other podcasts and shows of interest. We encourage you to check it out at TheMesh.TV. That's T-H-E-M-E-S-H.TV for not only Foot Candle Films, but other shows. And uh, go check it out and let us know what you think of the different programs available. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll talk to you next time. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Toller for the show theme music. 
For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.